How many of you have ever seen a, a, a Bible that has the, uh, the books of the Bible in chronological order? Have you guys seen a Bible that has like that? Okay. The, the, the way that it's written in here and ordered is, didn't happen in this order. Okay. So uh, I think sometimes we need to kind of take a step back and kind of look at the, the, the ways and the, the order in which the books were written to kind of get some perspective on some things. And when we see uh, the real chronological order of the New Testament books, we understand some of the challenges uh, of folks in the early church. Um, so go ahead and show that slide, Todd. So over on the left, kind of, uh, you can see the first New Testament book was written about 50 AD, about 17 years or so after Jesus' death. And, and you look through that list... And one of the things that you notice is, is most of those books over on the left, the first books written were all Paul's letters written to churches that he helped start. And you don't see the first gospel until Luke down there in the year 63 AD. So you can imagine um, when these churches started, they had to rely um, totally on the oral account of Jesus' teaching. Um, and, and the disciples and, and the eyewitnesses to what Jesus did would pass on these stories. Uh, so you can imagine what a challenge that was. You know, can you imagine trying to start a church and not, never being able to like open a Bible up <laughs> to, to, to look at some things or, or roll out a scroll or whatever they would do back in that time? It was incredibly challenging. And um, hopefully this, this knowledge gives you a little bit of, of appreciation for some of the, the battles that Paul was facing uh, in trying to teach these young churches how to live like Christ. Um, it was incredibly, incredibly challenging. And especially when he was taking the gospel to not just Jews, who would have had um, at least the Old Testament to kind of fall back on, uh, but also to Gentiles, some of whom had, had never even seen Old Testament or knew Old Testament scripture. So they didn't have a concept of God the Father. They didn't have an understanding of some of the, the prophecies about this Messiah that was going to come, Jesus. And, and so he was really starting from scratch with some people. So the first letter that he wrote to a church that he helped start was to a church in Thessalonica, uh, called Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, two different letters. And he wrote it about A.D. 51. And like I said, the first gospel wasn't for 12 more years after that. So Paul was on his second of four missionary journeys that he took. And um, Thessalonica, uh, just to give you a little background, it was uh, a pretty bustling city in northern Greece. And at that time, that area was known as Macedonia. It was a a seaport. It was on a major trade route. There were about 200,000 people in that city, which for that time is, is pretty populous, okay? So, so it was kind of a gateway to much of the rest of Greece. And let's get a little background on how it was that Paul and his traveling companions ended up in Thessalonica to begin with. So I have a map here for you to give you some perspective. So Jerusalem is off the map, right, right around here. So Paul had traveled up. You can see Antioch, uh, and then he's going up, and you see that city Troas there on the coast, And if you read in the book of Acts, it says that when Paul was there, he was trying to go kind of north in northern Asia, but it says that the Holy Spirit blocked him from going there. And he says he has a dream, and and this man from Macedonia says, hey, come and and tell us about the gospel. And so he gets in a boat, and he goes over to Neapolis, and then to Philippi. And when he gets to Philippi, so you can take your eyes off the map for a second, focus here, there we go, okay? When he gets to Philippi, 
um, he has quite a bit of initial success. He, he gets some converts and, and things are going along pretty well until one day they come across this, this young slave girl who has a, a demon in her. It's the spirit that gives her the ability to tell the future, kind of like a fortune teller. And so these, these men owned this girl and used her to make money. And Paul and Silas cast this demon out of her and it really makes these guys mad. And so it says that they arrest him and Paul and Silas and they, they beat him, they flog him, which is what they did to Jesus before they put him on the cross, rip all the skin off their back. And they put him in jail. And so kind of a rough start to things in Macedonia, right? It's like, okay, God, I'm going to go follow you there. You know, the people want to hear it. Then you get there and you get beaten practically to death, okay? So if you know the story, this is recorded in Acts chapter 16. That very same night, Paul and Silas and their mangled backs are sitting in a jail cell. And it says that they're singing and, and praises and hymns to God. And he says that, that God sends an earthquake that, that breaks open all the prison doors. And so the jailer at the time is freaking out because he's thinking, if any of these guys escape, it's, it's my head. And so he's getting ready to kill himself. Remember, and Paul says, hey, it's okay, we're all still here, all right? And so he, the jailer invites Paul and Silas to come to his house for dinner. He, he goes and has dinner with him. He shares the gospel with him. This guy receives Christ. But then the very next day, the people in Philippi are like, okay, like, it's obviously, you guys are pretty powerful, something's going on, we want you to leave our city, okay? So they leave Philippi, and they head over to Thessalonica from there. So um, let's, let's pick up the story then, if you can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, and we'll see what happens in, in uh, Thessalonica. Acts 17, it's page 772, we got new Bibles uh, in our pews today, so good luck with that. The print is different. So, page 772, Acts chapter 17. <clears throat> so this is, this is kind of the event that happens before Paul writes the letter to the Thessalonians later, okay? So this is kind of setting up what Thessalonians is going to be about based on what are some experiences that he had there. So in chapter 17, verse 1, it says, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Uh, Todd, throw that map back up there real quick so you can see. Okay, so Philippi, and then now you're coming down the coast, and you can see Thessalonica on the, on the coast of the Aegean Sea over there on the left. Okay, so that's, that's where they are. It says, As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue... And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks. So that God-fearing Greeks would be people that weren't culturally Jewish, but believed in the Old Testament. They had accepted the Old Testament, okay, as true. And then quite a few prominent women, it says. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters. I like that. Some seedy characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. 
When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So pretty hostile territory, huh? I mean, he leaves and goes to a different town, and they chase him down there. They're like, we're going to find you in Berea. We're going to shut you down there too, okay? So it's pretty rough. Did you notice how long Paul was in Thessalonica? What did it say there the first couple verses? Anybody remember? Three Sabbath days. Okay, so basically three Saturdays for them. Okay, so it could have been, you know, those three Saturdays and two weeks in between or a week leading up to that, but no longer than three weeks. So could you imagine going in and starting a church and having two to three weeks to tell them everything that they're going to need to know, keeping in mind that they don't have any New Testament scriptures, no Bible you know, gospel accounts, and and hoping that things work out okay. (laughs) So you can imagine, especially in the hostile territory that Paul knows that they're in, you can imagine the the worry that he has for them. You know, are these guys going to have the faith, the the ability, the endurance to to stick with this? But he's got to get out of town because his his life is on the line. So Paul and Silas, along the way, you notice a guy named Timothy. They picked him up in Philippi. And Timothy is a guy you see a lot in Paul's letters. Um, he is the son of a, a Jew and a Greek. And so he's a Greek citizen. So he's able to kind of move around that area a little bit easier than Paul and Silas. Um, he kind of blends in a little bit more. And, and so Paul is now moved on to the city of Corinth. And so a little while later, he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. And he's like, hey, I want you to go check on them and, and find out how they're doing. So, Timothy goes off to Thessalonica to see how things are going. So, in the meantime, Paul is struggling to start this new church in Corinth. Now, if you have ever read the books of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they're long because the people are really screwed up, okay? I mean, they are a mess. They, they are in a, a culture, in a city that's just rife with just all kinds of anything you can imagine, that we see in our culture today that's just like, holy cow, that's horrible. It was going on in Corinth. And so Paul is just in a place where he's really discouraged, really trying to get these people to get it, really trying to communicate to these folks what it means to be followers of Christ. And then Timothy comes back from Thessalonica. And this is what he says. So let's flip over to the book of First Thessalonians, which is page 824 in your Bibles there. <clears throat> Page 824. So let's just look at the greeting. It says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And one of the things that stands out about Paul is that he always traveled around in community. Right? He, he didn't try to go out on his own and do this stuff. For one thing, it was hard. And, and when you're getting beaten 
and chased from town to town and thrown in jail and prison. Man, to have somebody else there with you, to encourage you, to lift you up, to, to keep you going, I mean, it's just essential. So not only that, but he also had this understanding that at any time, his life could be over. And he wanted to make sure that he was investing in some other people that could carry this on uh, if, if he passed away. And so it's just a good reminder for all of us who are leaders um, or, or, or doing ministry that we have big enough visions and small enough egos to invite other people in to partner with us and to share it. That it's not just something we hold on to and it's our thing. Because then if we're not there, what happens to it? Does it all fall apart? Okay? So that's kind of his model. He, he, he hangs out with guys and does this together. So let's look at, at the report, that, that the response that he, he sends back to them based on the report he gets. He says, grace and peace to you. Well, he says, first of all, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before God and the Father, your, let's see, before our God and Father, there you go, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So man, in the midst of a rough time in Paul's ministry, you can just hear how excited he is to get this report back of the faith of the Thessalonians. Have you ever had that experience before where, where somebody that you've invested in, in your ministry or your life, um, you know, years later, months later, you hear back that they're still following Christ and just how encouraging that is? Man, I remember um, when I started doing Young Life, I started off at, at Ray Peck High School. And we had this group of like four guys that were juniors my first year there. And they were rough. And uh, in between Young Life Club and McDonald's, where we would go and hang out after club, when, when, when you would get to McDonald's and you'd stand in line by these guys, it was just like marijuana everywhere. I mean, they'd been lighting up in the car from Young Life Club to McDonald's, okay? So these were the guys that I'm talking about. But, but man, they kept coming, and they were faithful. And I don't know why they came, but they did. And they went to camp with us the next summer, and you began to see some slow change a little bit. But, and then I left and came up here to St. Joe, and I used to call back and talk to one of my guys that was a leader that kind of stayed in touch with one of these kids in particular named Brandon. So it was, you know, four or five years later, and I'm like, man, how does... How's Brandon doing? He's like, man, he's a young life leader in Olathe. And I was like, seriously? <laughs> you know, it was just like, that's awesome. Like, this guy has changed, and now he's investing in other kids. And, man, it was such good news to hear. And, and just in addition to this kind of joyful tone that you hear in Paul's voice in the midst of just, you know, a rough time in Corinth, you hear him speaking kind of like as a spiritual father to 
to children. You know, he's just so, uh, his love is so intense and heartfelt. He just wants them to do well. And how does this father's heart manifest itself? Well, right away we pick up on a theme that we're going to see throughout Paul's letters. If you read any of his letters, especially in the beginning, um, it's this constant prayer for his people that was a part of Paul's life. Paul and his followers didn't just give lip service to prayer. They were committed to it. And he said, we continually mention you in our prayers. Verse verse, uh, 2, right? We continually mention you. And in an age where you couldn't call up people in Thessalonica from over in Corinth and say, how's it going over there? Yeah? You know, or send them a text. How was church this morning? You know, how many people came to baptize anybody today? You know, you could write a letter once in a while and then hope the message would get through. And, but you pretty much just had to pray and say, God, man, take care of those people there. Do what you're going to do there. Like it was out of Paul's hands uh, in a lot of ways. Very different culture than our own. And our staff this year, we've been reading a book during our staff meetings called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, and it kind of traces Moses' leadership journey from, you know, taking four million Jews out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, out into the desert, trying to get them to the promised land, and if you've read the account, you know how stubborn these people are and how much they whine and complain, but what you see about Moses continually is his burden for his people, And he carries those burdens for his people to the Lord. And time and again, this phrase comes up. It says, Moses cried out to the Lord on behalf of his people. His people would complain, 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 and grumble. And instead of Moses just being like, guys, shut up. I'm sick of hearing your complaining like I would do after a while. He carries the cries of the people to the Lord. And this is how the author kind of described that. It's called intercessory prayer, when you pray for somebody else. It says, The number of times that Moses stood between the people and God, interceding on their behalf, and the impact that his intercessions had on the outcome of each situation are worth noting for their sheer magnitude. Clearly for Moses, intercession was a significant function of spiritual leadership. And then later on she says, During Moses' time of intercession, God gave him specific guidance for how to stay faithful to his calling in the midst of whatever he was going through, and he usually emerged with specific guidance for the community. In fact, the people of Israel had come to look forward to receiving a word from the Lord through Moses with such anticipation that there was an entire ritual enacted around Moses' regular times of entering into God's presence. And so when they would see Moses heading toward the tent where God's spirit dwelled and the cloud would, would hover over that tent and they knew Moses was going to meet with God, they would come out of their tents and they would bow down, you know, and, and then they would wait in anticipation for what Moses was going to share when he came out because they knew whatever it is that he was going to say was coming from God, not just from Moses' own opinion and, and what he thought should happen and his viewpoint, but it was going to be God's words coming out of him. And so that's just an encouragement, not only of how Paul operated, but just for us as leaders, for us as husbands and parents and friends. I know for a fact that my wife is a lot more interested in what I have to say when she's seen me coming out of time in prayer with God, when she knows that I'm seeking his will and not my own. And that's encouraging. It's encouraging to you guys to hear me talk about me praying for our church or for you because you have this understanding that, he, that Bob understands that it's not him, that it's, that it's God working through him and, and the things the Spirit wants to do. It was a pattern of leadership in Paul. 
And I mention this because it's important for us to understand that, that Paul didn't trust in his own ability to change people's hearts. He knew that it wasn't just, I'm going to give this amazing sermon. I'm going to write this incredible letter. My charisma and my ability to attract a crowd is going to be the thing that makes a difference in Thessalonica. He knew that the difference that was going to be made was that the Holy Spirit was going to move. The work was beyond his pay grade. He knew he needed divine intervention, and he was okay with that. And why was he thankful? As you read through those letters, what are some of the things he mentions? He says, because of the stories we've heard about your work, your labor, your endurance in a hostile setting that showed their deep-seated faith, love, and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, guys, I see fruit in your life. I see evidence that this message of Jesus Christ is taking hold. It's sticking And I I see it in specific ways, and that's so encouraging. And so we look at those things and we ask, man, I hope those things are growing in me. (laughs) Is the gospel permeating our hearts and compelling us to live in a way that it encourages other people? Are people in your life encouraged by the life in Christ that you're living? Do they see growth in faith, hope, and love in you? To the point where they're just like, oh man, I am so encouraged by that person's life. Because I see evidence of fruit in their life. And one of those people that's doing it for me right now uh, is Sam Donahue. And Sam is a girl that's been here. She's been a Christian about two years. And she's in the process of moving out of her apartment and trying to find a place to live right here by Wellspring. So that she can be a missionary to the Edison neighborhood. And care for, for moms and kids here that are hurting and broken and just need to be loved. And I tell you what, her faith and obedience inspires me. I mean, I've been a Christian for 25 years, but man, I need somebody with some fresh excitement and enthusiasm who, who believes in what God is doing in their life and says, I'm going. And she doesn't have a lot of answers. She doesn't know how it's all gonna work out, but she just knows that she can't say no to what God is asking her to do. And that's encouraging. And he discusses further evidence of their changed lives in the verses that follow. He says, we know you have been loved and chosen because there's power in your lives, evidence that the Holy Spirit is moving and convicting you. And what did that conviction look like? I want you to look down at verse 9. Remember in verse 9 it says that you turned to God from idols. Do we have idols in our hearts that we've placed above our love for God that that we need to turn from. We all do. And it it might look different in every one of our lives. For some of us, we might have this idol of success or material things that that we are driven to achieve and take hold of. For others of us, it it might be um, relationships that, that take too much of our priority and distract us from God. Some of us, it might be always having to be right. For others of us, it might be always wanting to be the victim so that it's never all our fault and it's always somebody else's responsibility so that we never have to change. For others of us, we might have um, idols that, um, where you focus more on what other people think about you more so than what God says is true about you. You just want to keep people happy at all costs. There's all kinds of idols in our life. And again, Paul knew who was doing the work. He knows that the power in Thessalonica is the Holy Spirit because, guys, 
He only spent at the most three weeks there. He hadn't been there in a year. The stuff that was going on there wasn't because of Paul, but it might have been because of Paul's prayers and the power that was being released there through the Holy Spirit. But they did take away something from their brief encounter with Paul that Paul talks about. As you see in verse 6, he says, Paul acknowledges that they had picked up on some things. He says, you became imitators of us. Imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And maybe more than any other time in Christian history, if ever there was a time when people needed to be imitators, it was then. When they didn't have the, the, the Bible, that they could open up and read about these stories and, and they could imitate the, the people in the stories. All they had was the lives being lived out in front of them. Paul, Silas, Timothy, whatever it is that they modeled about Christianity, that was all these people knew. And he says, you became imitators of us, not just believers of a list of facts about Jesus. And look at Paul's continual invitation in his letters. Here's just some examples. In 1 Corinthians, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, he says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Philippians 3.17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul understood that evangelism was more than just a proclamation of the list of facts about Jesus that people were supposed to know and, and accept, but he knew that it was critical for him and his fellow leaders to be living examples of this gospel as well. And that's a tremendous privilege and responsibility that all of us who call ourselves Christians are called to. I want to ask you a question this morning. How many of you have actually said these words to another person, okay, or something like this? Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ, or imitate me. How many of you have said that to somebody else? Raise your hand. Why not? What is it that keeps you from, from saying that to somebody? This is me asking you a question. For you, what is it that keeps you from saying that? Yeah, Sam? I get nervous because I'm broken and I'm a sinner and I'm going to mess up. You know, he's that hypocritical, like, well, you did that and you said you were supposed to be this great person. Okay. Okay, the fear factor of I'm a sinner, I'm going to screw up, and then they're going to think I'm a hypocrite, and blah, blah, blah. What else? Yeah, Stacy. Okay, yeah, you say it, and you think that people are just going to think you're arrogant, like, who are you that I follow your example, right? Okay, yeah, what else? Other fears that we have why we don't say that okay that just your sincerity you might not actually mean it when you say it what else or maybe you haven't considered the cost of what that might cost you to be an example okay you say it flippantly maybe what else taylor do i'm sorry say it a little bit louder Okay, you feel like you haven't lived a life to where you could say that to somebody else. <clears throat> All right, guys, people need spiritual 
fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters. Okay, now Paul said all of those things, but he wasn't perfect. He called himself the greatest of sinners. He had been somebody who had murdered Christians, but he said, follow my example. (laughs) Now that I'm a new man, you know, he wasn't perfect. And I want to translate this into a, a, a context that we might have a little bit more understanding of here. Okay, I'm a dad of four kids, okay? And just because I'm not a perfect dad, does that mean I can just shirk my responsibility to my children because I screw up sometimes and say to them, well, don't follow my example? What is a Christian anyways? I mean, isn't part of modeling the Christian story when I screw up with my kids and I say, man, I blew it. And, and I confess that. I, I, I messed up. I, did, I treated you really poorly. And I need you to forgive me. And, and I'm, I'm sorry. I, I want to be better than that. <laughs> and modeling that to our kids is so critical. And we can take hold of that and we can say, okay, yeah, I kind of get that. I understand that. And then when it comes over here to being a Christian, we're like, oh, man, I can't do that. You know, if I screw up, it's like the end of the world. It's like, no, man, have you read the people in the Bible? I mean, they're all screw-ups. Half of you guys are probably living better lives than the people that were in here, right? Seriously. I mean, David's having adultery. He's murdering the husband of the guy, and, you know, Peter's denying Christ. And, I mean, it's just rampant, the people, the mess-ups of these people in the Bible, okay? So don't use those things as excuses, have the guts and the courage and the belief in who you are as a follower of Christ to say to somebody else, follow my example. Because guess what? It's going to raise you up to a higher place. When you know other people are watching you and you've said to them, imitate me, that's going to make you get down on your knees. That's going to make you get in the word and say, man, I, I, these people are watching me. And, and they're forming an impression on who God is based on my life. The reason why we don't do that is because we don't want the responsibility. We, we want to live the easy life and do things the way we want to. Nobody wants to follow somebody who's perfect. I mean, how discouraging is that, right? I am more inspired to follow somebody who's broken and knows it and admits it than I am by somebody who I, never shares their flaws. That doesn't inspire me at all. Amen? And the young folks in this room aren't off the hook either, okay? Because as we talked about, one of the guys that he picks up on this missionary journey is Timothy. Timothy's probably a teenager when he goes on the road with Paul and starts seeing the things he, that he sees, okay? And later on, he, Paul writes to Timothy. He writes a letter to him, 1 Timothy 4.12. He says this, don't let anyone look down on you because of you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity, If you're a young person in this room, set an example for the adults in your life to call them up to higher places. I can guarantee you that my 18-year-old son has challenged me because of the life that he's living in Christ, because of the faith that he's showing, the way he steps out in places where I know are scary for him and is obedient to God. Man, that inspires me. It challenges me to raise my game. I love how Paul reminds them that they did all of this. All these things that were encouraging 
in the midst of what he says is severe suffering. And he says, you did it with joy. Guys, this wasn't easy for them to go from being idol worshipers to believers in Christ. You know, they they were putting their life on the line saying, we're followers of Jesus. And the Greek word that he used there for suffering uh, was the image of the pressure that they applied to grapes before they burst. Okay? There was pressure there. There was tension And it made me think, especially here in America, of how quickly we as Christians kind of throw in the towel when things get tough. We're just, we're so easily discouraged and so easily just distracted and and frustrated and all of these things. What kind of an example do we set for others when, when there's some adversity and there's some trials and tribulation, you know? It's easy to be a follower of Christ when everything's going well. (laughs) It's when the crap hits the fan and how you handle that in a godly way that really speaks to people's lives. You know, I mean, I coach running at Central High School. Distance running is brutal. It hurts. It's not much fun. And, And, you know, some people are just like, oh, it's painful. It hurts. I'm like, well, yeah. That's what it is. That's what happens when you run fast. You're going to be in pain, you know? If it didn't feel, if it didn't hurt at all, everybody would be doing it, right? But hardly anybody is because it's hard. So, so what does it show about your character when you endure through pain? And finally, we see the result of their faithfulness and how they imitated Paul's life. Look back at verses 7 and 8 again. It says, And so you became a model to all the believers, in Macedonia and Achaia, the Lord's message rang out from you. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. So remember, Thessalonica was a major trading city. So as people passed through, they would hear the stories about this young church and how they were persevering through the suffering. And then they would take that story on to other towns and other young believers. And so not only was it encouraging Paul, but imagine how encouraging it was for people in these other towns who were being persecuted to hear, oh man, in Thessalonica, they're hanging on, man. They're thriving. They're, they're showing faith in the midst of a struggle. So as we close today, I want us all to pay attention to the leadership process that Paul displays when interacting with people. Three things jumped out to me in how he operated. One is that he continually prayed I'm going to put those up there. He proclaimed the good news, and he called other people to imitate him. Prayer, proclamation, and imitation. So as you look at your life, your ministry, your leadership, your parenting, your friendships, how do you rate yourself in those areas? As you look at that list, are there one or two or maybe three areas that you need to walk away from here saying this morning, I've got to do a better job in that area. I've got to grow in that area. I've got to commit myself to pray more for people. I've got to commit myself to, to proclaim the good news to people, to let them know where their hope is. I need to call people to imitate me and humbly come before God and say, God, I don't know if I can do it. I'm scared, I'm broken, I'm fearful, but people need your example, folks. People, some, there's some people that are never going to come to a place like this on Sunday morning that need to see and hear about Jesus in the way you live your life in a way that whets their appetite and says, huh, I wonder what's going on in that church. 
that Sam Donahue now wants to move into the neighborhood, right? People that knew Sam three years ago might say, hmm, something must be going on there. And on the other end of this process are the recipients of the good news. How are we called to receive the message of Jesus? He says, you become imitators, you endure in the midst of trials and suffering, and you are faithful. And you do those things so that your faith will ring out and be an encouragement and strengthen other people. And guys, I was thinking this morning about these faithful people in Thessalonica in the midst of severe suffering. The thought that came to my mind as we get ready to head into communion is that the same thing that was bringing them hope in 51 AD is the same thing that's bringing me hope in 2014. Same story, same Jesus, same spirit. 2,000 years later, that hope rings out over time. It hasn't changed. And as we come to the communion table like they did in Thessalonica in 51 AD, we remember Jesus' sacrifice for us, his love for us, his willingness to be broken and poured out for us. And this morning I have a specific task for you, an opportunity, if you will, on the insides of your pews, there's some, some uh, foldable cards there and some envelopes that are just blank. I'd like you to pass those down the aisles if you can. Make sure all the adults uh, in your aisle, or just anybody, because it's pretty much mostly adults that are in here, um, have those. If you are missing one or need some extras, let us know. We can get some around to you. Um, make sure everybody has one. This is what I want you to do with that this morning. As always, as we head into communion, I'm going to give you some time of silence, just an opportunity to connect with God and pray. And then we're going to come up and take communion. They'll dismiss you by rows. You can come up and, and tear off the bread and dip it in the cup. We also have gluten-free uh, crackers and, and juice over there if you, if you need that. Um, and then we're going to sing our last song. But while that's going on, what I want to invite you to do is I want you to invite you to write a note. And here are kind of the the categories in which you can choose from. One is to write a note to somebody who you are praying for. And just to say, hey, listen, I'm praying for you. And this is specifically what I'm praying for you. This is what I'm praying will happen in your life. Just to let them know, man, that I'm in this with you. Whatever it is they're going through, I'm with you. And I just want you to know that I want, I want you to be encouraged by that. Okay, so that's one thing you can do. Another thing you could do is you could think about somebody in your life right now who's going through some suffering, kind of like the people in Thessalonica, but they're enduring, and their faith, they're hanging on, and, and, and they're just an incredible example to you right now of perseverance in the midst of suffering. And just to say, man, I see, I see your life, and it encourages me. And the third thing would be maybe somebody that you've imitated over time. You've looked at their life, and maybe you've, they didn't invite you to, or maybe you never have even told them, but you just, you know, I, I've, I've been trying to imitate my life after you because I see things in you that I want for myself, and I just want to thank you for setting a great example for me. And the collective environment of hopefully, you know, 200-plus adults here sending out words of encouragement to our church and around our city and our world or whatever, I hope will be like a cup of cool water to somebody this morning to encourage them that, that people have noticed their faithfulness. If it's somebody that goes to our church and you just want to hand it to them before you leave today, I would encourage you to do that. 
Um, if you know their name and you can just set it in our offering box, if they come here, we'll mail it for you this week. Or if it's somebody that's outside of our church, that's cool too, and you can mail it on your own. But please follow through with this. Take the time. If we start singing a song and you're not done, just sit down and keep writing. Okay, that's more important this morning than making sure you sing every word of every note of what we sing here, okay? So I'm going to pray for us as we head into communion time today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for just the examples of, of like the folks in, in Thessalonica who, who didn't have a lot of things going for them like we do today. Man, they didn't have a Bible in every pew. They didn't have a heritage of understanding uh, your truth. They lived in a culture that, that was beating and, and, and throwing in, in jail evangelists and people who called themselves Christians. I mean, it appeared like the cards were stacked against them, but... But man, they were faithful because you provided for them. Your Holy Spirit was more than enough for what they needed to endure during that time. And they were an encouragement to everyone else. Man, this is one of the few letters that Paul writes where he is really encouraged by some folks, man. It wasn't that often. And so this morning, I pray that we would just be just conduits of gratitude. Lord, that you would just use us to be encouragement to somebody else today. And Lord, that you would give us the courage to say to somebody else, man, imitate me, follow me, not because I'm great, but because the God that lives in me is great. And I am more than a conqueror. All those things that you say are true about me. Because you live in me, I can be an example to somebody else. Not a perfect example, but an example of grace and truth to others. So God, we just give you this time, pray you'd speak to us and use us to be an encouragement today.